Hey everyone, welcome to another Monday episode of Open Space, my live question and answer show where I have literally no idea what's going to happen. I can only assume we're going to talk about space and astronomy, but I don't know. That's you. That's for you to decide. I am merely your humble space nerd servant. So hit me with your questions and uh, let's get into it. Uh, if you missed it, we had another epic star party last night. Uh, just great. We had I the problem that we as we move into the summer, we have to start these later and later because I, you know, you could I had lots of sunshine pointing into my telescope. So we had to wait for the sun to go down. So it was probably like 930 nine ish 930 before we could really start. So I think as we move through the summer, at least until mid of July, we'll have to start at nine Pacific, and then start moving back earlier again, and probably end up around six Pacific in the middle of the winter time. And then we'll just sort of make that shift back and forth, six to nine back to six. But it was just amazing. Like I love I love galaxy season, we saw uh, the pinwheel galaxy, the whirlpool galaxy, some really cool edge on spiral galaxies. And it was just perfect conditions, comets, uh, all kinds of stuff. So it was great. Um, so if you haven't already join me fry on Sunday nights, as soon as it gets dark on the West Coast for the virtual star parties. Alright, let's get into the questions. Um, and if like, there's a lot, then I'll just go fast. So the bees nest Two asks, do solar sails really work? Yes, solar sails really work. They have been tested many times both on Earth and in space. Um, the Japanese had a spacecraft tested a solar sail that worked great in space. And right now the Planetary Society is testing a solar sail in space. Every orbit it it shifts itself so that it goes from parallel to the sun to perpendicular to the sun and it raises its orbit a little bit and and they're calculating how much of an impact that is and then you know over the next couple of um months it will eventually re-enter the earth's atmosphere because it's only able to raise its orbit on one side of the planet and so it's raising its orbit on one side but it's still at the same height on the other side of the planet and eventually it's going to crash into the earth and and that'll be that test over and then they'll move on to their next test so absolutely dragon king will we ever reach 99.99 percent the speed of light and i'll never say never but to reach 99 percent the speed of light well okay i mean uh, we have been able to move things at 99.999% the speed of light. When you look at, say, the Large Hadron Collider, the particles that go around and around inside the ring are going a significant fraction of the speed of light. So we can absolutely move individual particles at that speed in a circle. Um, is that what you need? Because go to Europe. They got that going on for you. And really at any particle accelerator. But I think what you're hoping for is, can we make a spaceship go at 99.99% the speed of light? And the answer is probably not ever, because as you get closer and closer to the speed of light, the amount of energy that's required uh, just goes up exponentially. 
and the amount of propellant that you require. But you need you need propellant to be able to move faster and faster and faster. And if you're going to carry propellant, you need to carry propellant to accelerate the propellant. And that propellant's going to need propellant to accelerate the propellant, and so on and so forth. So uh, the rocket equation tells us that there is just a limit to how fast we can go. And eventually, you're turning the entire universe into propellant to make your spacecraft go. And that is madness. So I know science fiction told you that Han Solo and Chewbacca, they get into their spaceship and they press a couple of buttons and the ship goes at many times light speed and then they arrive at their destination and they pull out their blasters and it's pew pew and they're having their sword laser sword fights and violating the prime directive, but and going through the Stargate. But science fiction is just a TV show. It's just a book. It's just a movie. It's just anime. It's not real. And uh, we can never say that that anything is completely impossible because we never know what the future holds. But at the same time, we can't use its existence in science fiction as a justification that the technology is possible. So uh, I urge you as a person who's a big fan of, you know, I'm a huge fan of science fiction too, but I don't use it for my future predictions too much. It, you know, it inspires us to seek the future, but it doesn't provide us a roadmap for how things will actually work. So, um, that's sort of how I feel about that. And so I hate to rain on your parade. Now, maybe we could do 10% the speed of light. 20% the speed of light, that's pretty great, right? Get to the nearest star in um, 40 years, maybe in 400 years. That's still faster than never. And imagine being able to make it to another star system. So um, I actually did a whole video about the weight calculation. And if you just calculate the speed, sort of the rate of growth of our energy, we will get to the nearest star system in about 800 years from now. So just wait for that. Obviously, we're going to need a couple of uh, robot bodies to get there. But I will high five you on Alpha Centauri in 800 years. Um, Larry Beckham, what is your favorite fuel for a return rocket from the surface of Venus burning metal and Orion type nuclear drive? Uh, any spacecraft that we send to Venus, Venus is going to keep. Any rockets we send to Venus, Venus is going to keep to try to get a rocket to launch off of the surface of Venus. I mean, just imagine, right? Venus has the same gravity, essentially, as Earth, but it has an atmosphere that is like the pressure is like almost 100 times denser. So it would be like trying to launch a rocket through incredibly dense liquid but from a gravity well that is the same as the Earth. It would be so tough to do. And it's hot enough to melt, I don't know, boron, right? So the temperature is ridiculous, 473 degrees centigrade. That's crazy. Um, so just I can't even imagine what it would take to be able to lift off from the surface of Venus. I think what we're going to see is if we are able to build heat resistant rovers, we're just going to drop them on the surface of Venus and they belong to Venus now. Um, they'll operate for as long as they can and then they're gone. Uh, enjoy Venus these this bubbling pile of molten rover is yours now to play with. 
Um, I can imagine us having various sample return missions, something like maybe a balloon or something that lowers down a sample collection and then bring, reels it back up. Uh, I've seen some ideas for uh, air-launched rockets. So imagine like a Pegasus vehicle or a, a, a raccoon, right? A balloon-launched rocket that drops the rocket and the rocket fires and it flies up out of the atmosphere and away it goes to reach orbital velocity. But same problem that you've got a, um, a you know, you've got to still escape that, that you still got to go about seven and a half kilometers per second to get away from the surface of Venus, which is really complicated. If you can't just start from the surface of Venus, fill up your rocket and launch, you got to start from the middle of the air. So I can imagine some far future where there's some combination of balloons and rovers and air launched rocket systems, but it just sounds, uh, it sounds very far off, but I like the idea. I can't wait to see it. Um, Vicken is asking, I'm dying to know more about these new brighter supernova and how it impacts the standard candle theory. So the, all right, so Nobel Prize was recently given to the people who discovered the evidence of dark energy, this idea that the expansion of the universe is accelerating. And that was discovered back in 1998. And what happened was a bunch of astronomers were examining this idea of a standard candle. This is a type of supernova that explodes with exactly the same amount of energy, roughly, um, because of the way it operates. Essentially, a white dwarf star steals material off of a companion. When it hits 1.4 times the mass of the sun, it explodes with the exact same amount of energy. And so whenever you see one of these supernova out there in the universe, you know how much energy it released. Therefore, you know how far away you just check how bright it is. You were able to calculate how far away it is. And then astronomers did this to try and figure out how the galaxies were slowing down thanks to their mutual gravity. And it turns out they weren't. They're actually accelerating away from each other. But the underpinning of this entire theory is that a supernova, a type 1a supernova, releases precisely the same amount of energy. And so one new competing theory is the idea that maybe the the raw ingredients that went into the kind of star that turns into a type 1a supernova has been changing over time. And so what you think is a star exploding with precisely the same amount of energy is actually a star with a bit of a different ingredient mix early on in the universe. And that's messing up the results in a way that makes it look like the expansion of the universe is accelerating. What's the answer? The answer, it's interesting. Uh, their work is very good. I'm not an astrophysicist, but I know that it's very intriguing. And this is how science works. Somebody proposes an idea, someone comes up with another idea, everybody gathers data, they argue, they propose more uh, ideas, and then eventually whatever gets the most evidence will hold true. So is the one that most people will believe is probably true. Uh, the more uh, Evidence. So, so I guess we're just in this point where people are just going to look for more and more evidence and do new studies, and they're going to they're going to double check each other's work, and they're going to say, is it is it true that a that supernova had different constituents earlier on in the universe, and and just keep going. Uh, it's fascinating to watch this unfold. I love it, and I can't wait to see just what the next discoveries are. This is, you know, back to that original question about like why can't we go speed light speed of light? Meh. I want to watch these mysteries unfold in in real time and and see and learn about the universe. I love it. 
Um, HDHN SOC. Why is it so hard to get to Mercury? Mercury is the closest planet to the sun. And the problem is, is that each of the planets has a faster and faster orbital velocity as you get closer and closer to the sun. And when you actually get to the sun, right, the as weird as it sounds, the sun is the hardest place in the entire solar system to reach. So think about it like this, right? The Earth is going around the sun, it's going 30 kilometers per second. And so for you to fall into the sun, you have to cancel out that orbital velocity. So you were going 30 kilometers per second, you have to fire a rocket that's the equivalent of going 30 kilometers per second, which is way beyond any rockets that we ever launched today. So you have to cancel out that velocity so that you can then drop into the sun. If you don't cancel out that velocity, you're not falling into the sun, you're just in orbit around the sun on a different orbit. Like even if you take a rocket, you fire yourself towards the sun from the Earth, you're just going to end up in a different orbit. It's only when you're able to actually cancel out that velocity. Well, Mercury is really close to the sun. So it's the same thing. You've got to cancel some of that velocity to be able to match Mercury's velocity. And the way that spacecraft do this is they use gravitational assists. They fall into or they're launched towards, say, something like Venus, and then but they go in the opposite direction that a spacecraft that's trying to go outside of the solar system goes. So they are actually going in a way that they speed up Venus's orbit around the sun, and they get slowed down in return. And then they can go around, maybe they can do multiple flybys of Venus until eventually, they're able to um, be able to get slow enough to the point that they can go into orbit around Mercury. So it's, it's tough, you've got to, you've got to lose a bunch of velocity from from the Earth. And yet you're going faster when you get closer to the sun. Um, but play Kerbal Space Program. This is always my recommendation. Play Kerbal Space Program, and it will, it will give you a real lesson in orbital mechanics. I always say I learned more from playing Kerbal Space Program than I did in 15 years of, of science, space science journalism about just how rockets work. So, uh, and I, you know, I'm, I'm no, I'm no expert. <laughs> I, all I can do is crash things into the moon, which I feel is it's an accomplishment. William Beckham, if even light cannot escape a black hole, does that mean that things can go faster than light as it goes past the event horizon? So nothing can go faster than the speed of light, even when it's going into a black hole. So uh, even when it's inside the event horizon, it can't go faster than the speed of light because nothing can go faster than the speed of light. And so you're thinking, well, yeah, well, maybe you could go if you could go faster than the speed of light, could you escape a black hole? And the answer, like, the easy answer is you can't go faster than the speed of light, so the question is irrelevant. But the interesting thing is, is that space-time itself gets tangled up so badly by a black hole that there are no pathways out, out of the black hole. So even if you could go faster than the speed of light, you would still end up in the middle of the black hole and be consumed. Claire Hill, I was listening to your podcast with Dr. Phil Metzger about the dangers of moon regolith to astronauts and machinery. How do the astronauts who have already landed on the moon deal with it? Yeah, so if you read some of the records and listen to what they talked about, they had the equivalent of like a stuffy nose and a cough from the amount of time that they spent interacting with the lunar regolith. And it was not a lot of time. They went out, they put on their spacesuits, they went out onto the surface of the moon, they 
did a bunch of science experiments, gathered some samples. They came back inside the spacecraft. They took off their spacesuits. And then in some cases, they went back out again more times. In other cases, they, you know, eventually they came back. And just that, and that dust got everywhere, and it got into their lungs, and it got into their, their nasal cavity, and it was misery. So, but that was not like a lifetime spent in this environment, but it looks like it has the equivalent of like asbestos. It causes little hooks that go into your, the dust goes into your, um, into your lungs and hooks in, and your lung tissue tries to deal with it. And so it's felt that, that long-term exposure, continuous exposure to this stuff is going to cause significant health problems to, to the astronauts. And that's why we talked about this several times that we will have to learn to minimize the amount of, of regolith that the astronauts deal with on the moon. There's going to be, and I mentioned this in the QA just before this, that that there will be regions of the moon which are safe, which have been turned into like a big clean room outside where it's been swept clean, it's been paved, there's no regolith, there's no risk of regolith, and everything is very, very pristine. And then there's going to be other parts where you're out into the wilds again, where you're collecting samples from different regions where you have to have a very careful protocol where... I mean, the, the, the rovers that you use are designed to minimize their breakdown from the regolith getting into all the machinery and that you have very strict protocols about how you get out of your spacesuit and how you minimize tracking the stuff back into the spacecraft. There could very well be multiple like air showers that you have to take to blow away the regolith as you try to come back into the space station. Or maybe your spacesuit will remain outside and then you just sort of climb out the back of it and then you're inside the station. So uh, they're going to have to figure this out. Um, there's a million little details, which is sort of back to this whole day, idea of how difficult it's going to be to to explore the moon and why we really need to have a permanent structure on the moon. We need to, there's a million little details that we've got to figure out. Um, all right, let's move on to the next question. Um, Mercury, so Brandon Warren, Mercury has ice in permanent shadow craters. Would there be a ring of liquid water at the edge where the water goes super cold to hot, even a few inches? No, the, the problem in, the, in Mercury is that the air pressure is so low. So if you can heat up the ice to the point that it will melt, it will just sublimate away into space. So it will boil. So wherever you have, so if you took like, an, like a snowball and you threw it onto the surface of Mercury or onto the surface of the moon, even in sunlight, it'll just fizzle away into gas and then blow away into the solar system. Um, I mean, it depends on, on over long periods of time. I mean, it'll sort of end up in the atmosphere of Mercury and then it'll blow away into space from the uh, solar wind. So you won't get liquid in the same way. On Mars... If you have, there are some spots where they think that maybe you could end up with a liquid on the surface of Mars for, for under very special conditions. You would have to have a, a kind of a brine that, um, that can handle the low pressure and you would get it at certain temperatures when, when Mars is, is, uh, is warm enough for this brine to form, but not sublimate away. So there are very special conditions, but for, but for essentially for Mercury, anything that has no atmosphere, the and it's cold or it's hot if it's cold it stays frozen and if it's warm it sublimates and it's gone um 
Kyle Hunt, if there's anyone on Earth to view the cosmos with your telescope, where would you go? I would say the best place to view the cosmos, if you had a telescope and you wanted to, would be the high plateau in Antarctica. That is like the nicest spot on Earth to look with a telescope. The problem is, is that it's very cold and it's very difficult to get to. Um, so I would... I mean, just going to a place like Australia, like if you go and just set up a telescope in Australia, or even just look with your own eyes in the Southern Hemisphere when you are in the outback, it is, it's just incredible. Nothing is like it in my experience. It was next level. And I, I live in Canada. I mean, we have pretty good dark skies. I, I can see the Milky Way from my backyard. I grew up in a place that was very dark skies, but Australia was just something else. So I can't even imagine what it would be like to say to be in a place like Chile, where you're on one of those mountains, you're in the southern hemisphere, you're high up above the atmosphere, the air is really dry. That's where I would love to go. I would love to go to like um, Atacama, go to Paranal, go to uh, where the, the very large telescope is down in South America and set up a telescope and just look at the sky. I, it would just be incredible. So uh, anyone wants to invite me, I'll, I'll come. Um, Lillian Brennan, does the regolith hook into the spacesuit too? Yeah, well, the, the, the regolith just gets into everything, right? It, it has this, because it's so sharp and jagged, it's just like, I mean, hooks isn't exactly the right way. It's, I mean, it's not as awful as asbestos is, which really is these little hooks that go into your lungs and, and they never come out. But it is more like a, like a crystalline, jaggedy, sharp thing. That, that is that is sort of it, and it does it, it you know from our perspective it looks like the spacesuit is just covered in dust and so it's very difficult to get that so you can brush it off clean it off wipe it off get rid of it it will be it can be removed but it just gets everywhere and that's what they found the astronauts found that they were just getting the regolith in just every part of their um you know into their lungs into their nose into their mouth and across the whole, all the interior of the spacecraft. And that was just from them very carefully trying to, to get out of their spacesuits and minimize the amount of regolith. So again, this is going to be a big problem until we, um, until enough infrastructure can be set up on the moon that we can make it more safe. Um, Shay 88, can an Alcubierre drive escape a black hole? So the question is, if you have a warp drive, that can actually distort space and space and time. Could you escape a black hole? Then the answer is sure. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, if 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 you have a device that allows you to distort space time, then even something that requires the maximum amount of space time to distorted to escape is like butter. You can go anywhere you want, do anything you want, no problem. Um. But it's possible they won't ever exist. Like I know, again, um, you'd love it to be real, but just because Star Trek told it's real, us it's real, doesn't mean it'll ever be real. Uh, AE Mitty says, "How often do you use the rig behind you, Fraser? Never. I never use the rig behind me because I use this amazing telescope down in California that's in a desert." that is a one of the fastest telescopes ever built uh, on an incredible mount that I can operate from inside the house uh, without in any kind of weather, especially on this wet West Coast weather. So um, I never use it 
telescope. There is a layer of dust on that telescope, and I feel bad, but the uh, the Rasa telescope that we use for the virtual star parties is just so good that I, I am so completely spoiled by it. Um, all right, let me go back a few more here. Apologies to people listening to this in podcast form. Um, Julius Stanionis. Professor, why is the speed of light so disproportional to the size of the universe? Uh, it doesn't seem fair, does it? That the universe is enormous, and yet even, like there's these great animations that you can see that show the speed of light in real time, and it just takes forever for the speed of light to go anywhere. And since the speed of light is the ultimate speed limit of the universe, we just won't be able to go very far. And the reason is because the universe is huge. I mean, the 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 speed of light, the amount of the universe that we can see is defined by the speed of light. If the speed of light moved faster, then we could see more universe. And if the speed of light moved slower, then we could see less universe. So the fact that we can see almost 14 billion light years in all directions, or we can see how long the light took to travel for 14 billion years, but it's actually moved 46 and a half billion light years, thanks to the expansion of the universe, please don't send me emails, um, is, is incredible. That's an enormous number, right? Um, and yet it's funny because we sort of are, we are so jaded because we can see it, right? We can see Andromeda with our own eyes and go, wow, that thing is two and a half million light years away. This thing that I see with my eyes would take me two and a half million years traveling at the speed of light to get to. Uh, and yet there it is in the sky moving towards us. So it's funny how we, but even like we have to deal with communication between spacecraft. If you want to communicate with the Voyagers, it takes like almost a day. And it's just that space is big. Speed of light is fast, but when you, but not speed is light is not as fast as space is big. So, um, uh, Amy, did you use Dustin's Rasa 11 and the CGX? I only use the Rasa 11, so I don't use any of the other stuff that, that Dustin has set up there. I mostly because I'm, I've gotten very, the Rasa does exactly what I need to do. I mean, we sort of designed the Rasa 11 rig for doing the virtual star party. So it's. It's not good. If you're an astrophotographer, it's not a great telescope for what you want to do. But if you want to do star parties, you want to be able to show people pictures of space in 30 seconds, that's the machine. And so we built a telescope that is a mediocre astrophotography setup, but a wonderful tool for helping to share astronomy with the masses. Unless you want to look at planets, and then it's terrible for that. So that's sort of the next big challenge is to make a planetary scope that we can get going. Kyle Hunt, how will you watch the Crew Dragon launch? Uh, so, so we had applied for press access for the Crew Dragon launch in three days, two days on Wednesday. Uh, and we were denied, like a lot of people were denied because of the social distancing. Thanks, coronavirus. Um, so we had a photographer who was going to be going and actually taking shots of the whole event. And we were going to do a bunch of stories and use his pictures and record some interviews. And that's all out. So what am I going to do? I don't know. I'm probably going to watch the stream with Everyday Astronaut. 
I'm sure he's going to do something fun. So maybe I'll just jump into, into Tim's stream and, uh, and, and hang out and chat. I'll bet you Scott Manley will be there too. So we'll all just go and party with Tim and, and hang out in his stream. I'm sure he'll be doing it. So that's what I'll do. Shout out to Everyday Astronaut. Um, Gitmo Holiday. Would a particle accelerator on the moon or in zero gravity have any advantages, even a small accelerator? Um, well, so right now, obviously, the when you're running particles on Earth, they're being pulled down by the Earth's gravity. But as they are going around and around and around, the, the real force that's the problem is this torque as they're going around this gigantic ring. And that requires like the most powerful magnets that have ever been built with incredibly enormous amounts of electricity that runs. So the force of gravity pulling the, these particles down is insignificant compared to the sideways torque they're experiencing as they're going around this, this, uh, the circle, the, I forget which one it is, the centripetal force. Is the inward one, the centrifugal force, the outward one, anyway, one or the other, <laughs> one of those forces is what they're experiencing because they're going, they're constantly being cranked into this ring shape. So yeah, if you put a particle accelerator on the moon, you would have less of the force pulling it down, but it's insignificant compared to it going around the, uh, um, it going the sideways motion. So uh, it, you wouldn't get that much of an advantage. Then you have all the disadvantages of putting your particle accelerator on the moon where you can't breathe and it's covered in regolith and yeah so no i don't i can't imagine us putting particle accelerators anywhere but earth for a long time now i can imagine things like wouldn't it be cool if you made a particle accelerator that was the size of the solar system right where the the particles are going from their, their going in some sort of cloud from magnet to magnet and each one twists them a little bit and moves them in this great big circle that goes all the way around the solar system and they just get more and more energy and then they get smashed together that would be great um but uh I, yeah, there's lots of things that we could do with gigantic you know things the size of the solar system just imagine a uh, like the Event Horizon Telescope, but it's the size of the solar system. Bobby Reynolds, what would happen if another solar system collided with the solar system? Well, it depends on so many factors, but none of them, none of the outcomes would be good. So one possibility is that, like you have to define your definition of collide. Uh, we know that other stars come relatively close to the sun and the solar system on a regular basis you know, every few tens of thousands of years, and they get to the point that they're, say, they're passing close to the Oort cloud. So they're passing like a couple of light years away from the sun. And it's believed that even those kinds of flybys cause enough um, of a disturbance in the Oort cloud to force some of these long period comets to drop into the inner solar system. And it's thought that maybe some of those close flybys have caused impacts on Earth in the past. And so if you know that that stars are coming within a couple of light years every few hundred thousand years, then chances are they come much closer or on the scale of millions of years, billions of years. Uh, and yet the solar system is 
relatively fine. So nothing's come that close. But if you had another solar system like the sun and the planets pass right through, it's the sun that you have to worry about the other star. And if the star gets close enough, it starts to mess with the orbits, it starts to cause these three body interactions with the planets, some planets get smashed into other planets, some planets get careened away out into deep space, some planets fall into the stars and are destroyed. So if a star got close enough to the solar system, it would um, it would make the solar system unrecognizable. Same thing with a black hole, right? If a black hole or a neutron star got close enough to the solar system, it would make the it would wreck the solar system. But clearly, that's never happened in four and a half billion years. Therefore, the chances of it happening before the sun cooks all life on Earth in the next say 500 million to a billion years, yeah, pretty low. So don't worry about it. Um, Raphael Dominicini, with the current technology of adaptive optics, is, is it worth launching a space telescope for the visible light? It's, there are plenty of advantages for launching space telescopes. There's plenty of advantages for, for ground-based telescopes as well. We are always going to have both. Um, the advantage of a space telescope is you can, you can do things like stare at the same object for hour after hour, day after day, week after week, uh, without any kind of weather or any of that, right? There's huge advantages to that. Um, yeah, adaptive optics work, but it's still not as good as no weather, no atmosphere whatsoever, you're still trying to adapt. But so you're having to take a 40 meter telescope, a 39 meter telescope and have it do the same job as a 15 meter telescope or a 10 meter telescope in space, say a 10 meter telescope in space would be the same as a I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but that's the point, right. And so if you took any telescope and you launched into space, it would be way better than its ground based equivalent. Uh, and then at the same time, though, ground based telescopes are relatively less expensive, you can upgrade and repair them very easily. But as the costs of launching things into space come down, especially with spacecraft like like Starship, you could take like a gigantic telescope, stick it in Starship, launch it into space and away you go. So so there will always be this back and forth where sometimes it's the ground based telescope, that's the easy one. And then there'll be other times when it's the space based telescope, which is the easier one. And I just anticipate those going back and forth forever. Um, MS pond, would you live in orbit? Oh, it's raining. Uh, would you live in orbit for a month? Uh, no, I don't think I would want to live in orbit for a month. I think I would want to live in orbit for a week. That would be fun. But I think at a certain point, like, I, like you'd spend time looking out the window at the Earth, watching the Earth go under, that'd be amazing. Um, but if you're just there as a tourist, I think you would be you'd want to come back to Earth after a while. So uh, a week feels like the, the right amount for me. Now with the astronauts, they're incredibly busy, they've got a, they've got jobs to do. So they are spending some time gazing out the window, but most of the time they are working, they're running experiments, they're doing maintenance and stuff on the on the International Space Station or on this, on their spacecraft. So they don't actually get a lot of free time to gaze out the window. And they are helping 
to it's sort of like the people who live in Antarctica who work in Antarctica, like they're most of the time they're doing really important research work every now and then they get to go and stand out at the edge of the white snowy scape and and just sort of gaze into the sky or think about, you know, their presence in the universe. But most of the time, they're just doing work. So but to be a tourist, I don't know, it'll be tough. I don't, I don't think I would I don't think I would enjoy it for very long. A place like the moon would be different, right? Because then you could go different places, you could go to this crater, that crater, this mountain, that mountain, this lava tube, whatever. But if you're just going around and around the Earth, I think that would get old after a while. But maybe not. I don't know. We'll have to find out when people start giving reviews of uh, when tourists come back from space and they talk about what they thought of it. Um, David, repeat, if we do find life on Mars, do you think that we should have never colonized? Do you think we should never colonize Mars? Uh, I don't think we should ever colonize Mars anyway. Um, I have a poster here. Gravity wells are for suckers, uh, which is if you're going to go to all the energy of escaping a gravity well like the Earth, why would you go and try to live in a new gravity well? You got it. You, you escaped. That's like going back into jail, gravity jail again. So um, like what, and for what? What do you get? You get mountains. There's mountains on Earth. Dirt. There's dirt on Earth. And you can grow stuff in it. Um, and it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's different. Uh, there's, there's oceans and there's there's forests like I, I am hard pressed to think of anything that Mars has that Earth doesn't have. Uh, it's got radiation that will kill you or that is dangerous. It's got lower gravity. We don't know what the effect of that is. So, so I think that and this is just my opinion and Elon Musk disagrees with me and he's the guy with the rocket company. So, you know, his opinion matters. Um, but uh, but I really feel like like the p purpose of places like the moon and Mars for humanity is for us to to study them and research. And so I want to see something on the moon and Mars like we have in Antarctica, we have a permanently inhabited station where people um, where people do research and try to understand the history of Mars and try to live in a place that that isn't Earth. But I think that for the long term, large scale exploration and colonization of space, it's going to be in space itself, it's going to be in some kind of orbital, it's going to be hollowed out asteroids, it's going to be um, in our future giant space stations, O'Neill cylinders, things like that. And mostly I, I, I do kind of like the Jeff Bezos plan, which is like, let's just get the, the heavy pollution off of the Earth so that we can let the earth do like there's one place in the universe that we know of that that is a nice place for life. And that's Earth. And yet we are wrecking it because we pump out dangerous gases and we ruin the oceans and we um, and we're gonna want more energy. So let's just go to space to get all that stuff. So uh, if we find life on Mars, then that will make that will give another reason why it's kind of dangerous for us to try to actually just pave it and turn it into a city because we will start to lose all access to to the information the history of that life that's on Mars. We'll want to understand it because the question is, is there life in the universe? And if we find life on Mars, then then will we? Are we related to it? How did it 
Where did it come from? Does it have the same chirality as Earth life? Uh, did it form in multiple events or is it all related to itself? I mean, there's so many questions that we need to know the answer to if we do find life on Mars. Uh, it would suck that we're like, oh, we found life on Mars. Oh, no, wait, it's cyanobacteria <clears throat> that we brought from Earth and we infected it, we wrecked it. So we'll never know. Um, uh, Neko Girl asks, where do you think we'll find life in the solar system? Enceladus, Europa, Mars? Um, I think that we won't find life in the solar system is what I think. That's my opinion. Uh, that's my guess. Um, but I think if there was a place to find it, it would probably be Enceladus or Europa. And if we did find life there, we would discover that it was related to us and that it didn't form independently. Because if it did form independently, that would mean that life can form across the universe, and yet we don't see any evidence of life. Therefore, uh, life doesn't form. Therefore, life on Earth is incredibly rare. But um, that's because I've, that's the, you know, when I think about the, the Fermi paradox that life, the universe is old and there's places for life everywhere in the universe and life has had, you know, it's gigantic. It's had plenty of time to form and yet we see no evidence of it. Um, the one, the answer that I feel is most compelling is that we're alone in the universe, but that's just me. Um, Uh, Julius Stanionis says, Today's engineers have to design space telescopes to insane specification to achieve good reliability, but with ever-decreasing launch cost, perhaps we won't need such reliability in the future. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I 100% I agree with what you're saying, which is that, you know, when you look at something like the James Webb Space Telescope, it was built to fit within a traditional launch fairing, the kind of thing that is on an Ariane 5 rocket or an Atlas rocket or a Falcon Heavy, right? It's, a, it's that size of a fairing. If you make a, and every part of it, it has to intricately unfold itself in all of its very complicated ways. And they had to constantly shave off mass and size to make all this hardware and software and, and all of these parts all fit within and to be able to do this crazy origami. But you take a much larger spacecraft like a Starship, or maybe you make the scaled up version of the Starship that has four times the or twice the um, the fairing capacity than, than the Starship. And suddenly you just start just taking a very simple telescope and you put it in the spaceship and you fly it into space and you let it go. Um, I'm also a huge fan of orbital construction where you actually start to just build, where you build things in space like what was done with the International Space Station. Imagine there was a, a space telescope that was built in the same way as the International Space Station, just putting parts together until you have a telescope that does what you need it to do using, of course, Canadian built robotic arms. I'm a huge fan of that. So I think that th we don't know what, what the, like, like, let's just like wrap our heads around Starship. Starship, right? Like right now, launching a rocket costs tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. The rocket is destroyed. Uh, it's incredibly expensive. And so you can only launch things which have the highest value. But say Starship, these Starships could potentially be launching four times a day. The Super Heavy, the booster could be launching 16 times a day. Um, each Starship 
it's completely fully reusable. So the only cost is fuel. When before you're looking at say $10,000 a kilogram with a with a traditional rocket, the space launch system or, or the space shuttle or something like that. And then maybe a Falcon brings that price down to say 2,500 with something like Starship, you're bringing those prices down to $75, $100. Like that's cheaper than a, than a space elevator. Um, it's crazy. And so we don't know what that means yet because we have no context right? It's just like people before the interstate system in the United States, when they thought about how long, how difficult it was to move things around the United States, they just didn't understand what a game changer, a, a countrywide interstate system was going to turn into. And that's the level of revolution times like a hundred of what Starship is going to be capable of doing. And so right now we just don't even know what it means. And it's almost pointless to speculate. It's like the singularity of, of space access on what it be, what makes sense to launch into space. And we will be shocked and surprised. And I hope delighted by what becomes economical to launch into space. All right. Um, F zero, if the universe is expanding, then why do the Milky Way and Andromeda are predicted to collide to milk Dromeda? Now I appreciate you saying milk Dromeda because that's the way that we must describe it. Um, not milk media, not milk Dromeda way milk. Anyway, it's milk Dromeda. Um, so yeah, so the question like we know that all of the galaxies we look out in all directions, we see galaxies moving away from us, why is Andromeda coming towards us? And the answer is that most of the galaxies are moving away from us. But we are collected into this large group of galaxies called the local group, which is part of this larger group of galaxies called the um, uh, the Virgo supercluster. And this is gravitationally bound together. So even though the the universe is expanding and on the largest scales, galaxies are moving away from each other and galaxy clusters are moving away from each other at these smaller scales on local levels, the galaxies are actually gravitationally bound and they can interact with each other and crash into each other. So there's only a couple like Andromeda, um, uh, M 33 triangulum and a bunch of dwarf galaxies and everything else is kind of moving away from each other. So, you know, that's, those are the exceptions. Um, Archon Wu, do you believe in alternate universes? Do you think you are a viewer and I am the YouTuber in one of them? Well, so we don't need alternate universes. Do I believe in alternate universes? I have no opinion on alternate universes. Um, I, you can only believe in things when there is evidence to support them. Uh, that's when you start believing in things. So, uh, I, so far, I mean, there are interesting theories. Nobody has demonstrated anything that's real. So, um, and you don't even necessarily need to even have alternate universes to have multiple versions of us. In an infinite universe, anything that can appear will appear an infinite number of times. So if we live just in an infinite universe, then there's an infinite number of me's giving this 
live stream on YouTube and an infinite number of views giving live stream and I'm the viewer. Absolutely. And every combination in between. So that is one of the implications of an infinite universe is that anything finite and it can happen will happen an infinite number of times. Vicken, how bad is the space debris around Earth and any good ideas for cleaning? The space debris problem around the Earth is bad, but it's not as bad as people think that it is. It's more like climate change, the global warming, like the like, like it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And there's going to be impacts and more impacts, and it's going to degrade our ability to access space over time and just cause this ongoing tax and sadness that will just increase over time as we attempt to access space. Um, so it's best to stop making space polluted, which is mind bending, right? Space is the biggest thing there is. And yet we have figured out a way to make it worse. Now, of course, we haven't really made all of space worse, just the nearby area around us. So um, and so the solution is like, don't make the mess in the first place. If you're going to dump a second stage rocket into space, have a way that that rocket can return back and crash into the earth or fly away into an orbit that isn't going to cause any damage. And a lot of just people just not they, they didn't think about it. And they just didn't put in the time and energy and effort to make that a requirement. Um, so that has to happen with literally every piece of potential space debris. You say if you're going to throw a second stage out, that second stage has got to clean up after itself and crash back into the atmosphere. Um, in terms of ideas for cleaning things up, the, the idea that I like the best is to have a, a laser system that, sh that is in orbit and as various pieces of space debris fly by that are due for being cleaned up, it shoots them with the laser beam and vaporizes a tiny little piece of the debris. And that, that vaporization acts like a little thruster to push the, to slow down the orbit of the piece of space debris and encourage it to, to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. And so with those lasers, the smaller the piece of the debris is, essentially the, the hardest pieces to clean up are the ones that are easiest to, uh, to decelerate because they're going to have low mass. And so you're going to have this, you know, multiple laser systems that are floating around in space. And as soon as any piece of space debris that's been targeted for, for a reclamation gets within some range, whatever is the weapons range of the laser system, then it just shoots it. And, you know, and then, and then maybe three orbits later, it shoots it again. And then, and then eventually when instead that thing was going to take, say, a uh, hundred years to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere now it only takes 10 and and that would be great that would be a real improvement now of course having a fleet of laser systems capable of vaporizing chunks of spacecraft out in space that's a little tricky from a geopolitical standpoint so someone will probably want to have to figure that out um Bobby Reynolds could a black hole eat a supernova uh yeah absolutely uh, if a supernova went off right beside a black hole, whatever went towards the black hole would go into the black hole and add, be added to the mass of the black hole. But the crazy part, of course, is how you get a black hole is from a supernova. Um, so when you imagine, like before you had a black hole, before you had a supernova, you just had a really big star, a star with, say, 
10, 20, 50 times the mass of the sun. And inside that star, it's burning all the fuel in its core, and it eventually runs out of the hydrogen. It's turning hydrogen into helium, and it eventually runs out of hydrogen and then switches to turning helium into oxygen. And then it keeps moving up this chain, and eventually it hits iron. And you can't get any energy out of iron. The energy is what's keeping the star from falling in on itself. And so suddenly all the, the layers inside the star collapse in on each other, and the star just comes down at, at like 70% the speed of light. This happens instantly. The star just goes, comes down together, and that's how you get the black hole. And then the, the outer parts of the star bounce off the middle because this material piles up. It's trying to go into the black hole that's formed at the middle of the star. And all these other layers are trying to go in as well, but it's like they're waiting to die, and they bounce off of this layer, and they go out into space, and that's the explosion that we see. And so, really, you couldn't get a black hole without a supernova in the first place. But if you had like another black hole orbiting around it and one star exploded, the other black hole would just lap up as much of the material as it could. And in fact, this is something like this has been thought to be a partial explanation for why we have gamma ray bursts. It's thought that, you know, gamma ray bursts are these really incredibly very powerful soup, um, sort of almost like supernova blasts that, that shoot a beam a highly concentrated beam, almost like a laser that can cross the entire galaxy and, and hit us um, and wipe out all life on Earth. Um, and it turns out it's thought that you have two stars in orbit around each other. One goes off, dies as a supernova, it's left as a neutron star, and it's orbiting around this other one. And then the other one goes off, and the first star sort of gobbles up all this material and gets spun up, and that's what creates the beam. So, but yeah. Black holes will eat supernovae all day long. Just, just like, here's your rule. A black hole can eat anything. Dark matter, antimatter, regular matter, energy, supernova, anything. It all just goes into a black hole. Um, Kyle Hunt, what space problem or mystery keeps you up at night? Um... You know, when I sort of think about existential, I did a whole episode about existential crises with, um, you know, just a couple of, of uh, with Sir Martin Rees, with Lord Martin Rees, a couple of, uh, I guess, like a week ago. And I'm not super concerned by any astronomical problem. I'm not really concerned about asteroid impacts. I'm not concerned about gamma ray bursts. I'm not concerned about, concerned about a rogue black hole. Obviously, you have this existential thought about how the universe will end, how all the energy will run out, it'll all just be quiet. Um, but and just like nothing will go on for the rest of the for the rest of time that feels sad, you know, the heat death of the universe, but none of that really freaks me out. I am I am worried if I was to like to think about like, what's gonna take us out? I'm concerned about artificially created pandemics, some kind of like what we're experiencing with the coronavirus now, but imagine if, uh, you know, individuals had the ability to manufacture these things on their own and release them into the wild. How do you prevent that? What are the consequences of that? That gets tough. Um, as the power, our ability to make this stuff over time gets better and easier and faster. And, and smaller organizations uh, can do this or even individuals. That's something that society hasn't figured out. And then on the same front, 
Think about the the additional leverage you can get from artificial intelligence, right? Back in the olden days, it required the entire resources of an entire country to create, say, a nuclear weapon. But eventually, smaller groups could be able to do it. And so think about artificial intelligence. Used to require the entire resources of a whole country, then maybe it's just a university, and then maybe people could do it with a supercomputer, and then script kitties are releasing artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms out onto the internet on their own. And they don't even have to be like HAL 9000. It's, you know, I can't do that, Dave. It could just be something that's, you know, some script kitty releases a piece of software that is designed to find electrical systems and destroy them. That would be bad, right? Or find medical equipment and fry it. Because they're, you know, because it's funny for the lols. That would suck. So I think those are the, those are the two things that I am most concerned with. Nothing astronomical. Um, let's see. We've got about uh, four minutes left. Um, Neil Yu. Fraser, if we're not in the sim, then why is the universe pixelated at the Planck scale? Um, so we don't know. So, so the Planck scale is the smallest possible unit in theory that you can kind of measure energy. It's sort of like the smallest quantum of energy. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the universe's resolution is. It's just a, a place where it, it doesn't sort of, it isn't meaningful to talk about energy at a smaller amount than that. But it doesn't mean that the universe can't be smaller than that. Also, if we are simulated, like people always say, well, you know, the universe, like all you have to do is like find places where the universe is stalling out and that'll tell you that you're living in a simulation. But, but we don't know that, that base reality has anything to do with the universe that we experience, right? That you could have a universe that is utterly alien to what we understand as a universe. And it is running a simulation that creates this universe that we experience. And it doesn't mean that, that what un the universe truly is, is you rise up in the love. And for that universe, maybe it's simulated too. And what true base reality is, is nothing to do with that universe either. So it's like turtles all the way down. And there's no real way for us to make I think meaningful predictions about whether or not we're in a simulated reality because there's no rule that says that the universe the that the the universe that we live in matches reality one level up. So it's sort of pointless to think about and you just live your life and have fun and just assume act as if it's real and don't worry about whether or not it's a simulation. Um, all right. One last question. Um, yeah, there you go. So physics police says Planck scale is a finite granularity, but it's not pixelated as in a grid like we've checked no grid lines. So yeah, it doesn't mean that it is the fundamental resolution of reality. It just means that it's a finite scale. But the universe could be as small as it needs to be. And it has no need to uh, uh, sort of follow our our rules. Um, all right. I think I'm going to wrap it here. So if you missed it, we launched a new question show like a couple of hours ago. That was super fun. Uh, working on a new episode about 
that what I talked about, about the neutron stars turning into gamma ray bursts, which is pretty exciting news. But there's a lot of great space news that's been coming out. So uh, stay tuned. We've got lots more projects in the works. Of course, another virtual star party coming up on Sunday. Um, we've got another down to like four more episodes of the weekly space hangout. So definitely join us on Wednesday. Um, and a new astronomy cast on Friday. So lots of good stuff to keep you company during whatever stage of the quarantine lockdown or re-entering society you're in. Um, and of course, I'm grateful for everybody's support, everybody watching on both YouTube and on Twitch. I really appreciate your following, your support, and uh, we will see all of you uh, next next week. Thanks, everybody.